Two of my favorite magazines gun to my head if I had to choose. The first one would be Howard Business Review. It's just something that I really like reading. The second would be something that's exactly the opposite. Not that I don't enjoy reading it, but it's opposite in terms of content. It's the New Yorker. And one thing that I really like about New Yorker, it's just that it's different. It's not the normal news magazine or the normal information magazine. Every edition of the New Yorker is different. They don't have a set rule that they apply on every edition. There's a whole new uh, form of fiction that you get with every new edition. And that's something that I really enjoy. But that's what I felt I had to do again. And, you know, so I decided to check on a new experiment. How about we change the magazine? So I picked up this magazine. It's called The Writer. And uh, the cover says, fine tune your fiction. Now, here's where I was wrong. I was expecting this magazine to be just like The New Yorker, you know, have a lot of fiction. But this magazine isn't about fiction. It's about fiction. They tell you how you can write better fiction. So it's like some sort of a precursor to The New Yorker. So I picked up this magazine. It's, it's again, got a really plain cover. But I think that's kind of becoming the norm now anyway. So let's dive right into it. Nikki Porter is the senior editor of this magazine. And although I'm not a frequent reader of this, of what frequent, this is the first time I'm reading the magazine, but I've heard the name before. And that's because if you're on Twitter, Nikki Porter is really popular on Twitter. And surprisingly, I never read her uh, profile bio, but it says very clearly that she's the senior editor of this magazine. So I guess that's something that I need to do. I need to start reading profile bios. Anyway, this magazine, the very first uh, paragraph of the edition of the introduction to the magazine says um, logic is a bar- logic is barricaded behind six deadbolted doors in the basement of our creative process. Then Nikki Porter says that there's no space for logic in the world of fiction because logic dictates that you quote unquote cut the crap. Now, this is what's exciting and this is what's different from how I perceive friction for me. Um, when you say there's no space for logic in fiction that's not how I've always seen fiction because we make fun of fiction for not being logical but this is where Nikki Porter says that that's how it's supposed to be you know fiction is not supposed to have logic that's her whole premise and that's what she builds around in this whole article she says that the only logic that you need in fiction is first to have a non-judgmental critique partner which is explored in the magazine and then the second one is time. The only logic that you need is the non-judgmental critiquing partner and time. Why time? To help you stay on track. She says fiction is something so deep that once you truly start exploring fiction, you go inside a rabbit hole. And that's where you you end up losing the track of time. Clearly, this isn't the fiction magazine that I thought it would be because the author is all about cutting the nonsense. It's about making Uh, stuff logical she says she wants to bring logic back into fiction you know good old-fashioned logic so to her she says clutter nonsense flab all of these things they obscure the message it makes it impossible to hear the story's truth to Nikki a true fiction is something that's truthful to the story and not to the way it's portrayed She says you need to be merciless, you need to be brutal, and that is the uprising of what she calls new fiction.
let's jump right into the first article that I read from this magazine. It's called Unfamiliar Waters by Yi Yun Chun. The article is about how you can navigate someone else's experience successfully. Now let's go back to the last episode, the episode where we discussed uh, the strategies that disruptors and traditionalists apply. Navigating through someone else's experience is some sort of a dis- uh, traditionalist technique because you're counting on someone else's experience to guide some sort of a path for you and then you just see where they went wrong and you do that thing right. Disruptors don't work that way. Disruptors charter a whole new path. But that's just me talking about the old episode. Let's see what this new article has to say. But before we get into the article, the reason this is so important for discussion is that despite me trying to repeatedly say that this podcast series is based on ideas and not people, the truth is you can't really separate the two because at the end of the day, these ideas come from people and they carry the biases that these people hold. For example, when a foreign journalist at, say, the New York Times talks about Indian politics, we see a division online. We see two groups of people. The first, who believe that the issue is finally getting the international traction that it should have. It's being internationally recognized. And the second, who believe that this lacks proper research and is based on stereotypes that the uh, writer has being a foreign journalist. So the question arises, what sort of a checklist should writers have when they're representing another demographic? Um, To sum up, there's three questions that uh, the writer of this article comes down to. The first is, how do we write other voices, other characters in reasonable and responsible fashion? The key point here is a reasonable and responsible fashion. The second question is, why do you want to write from this character's point of view? Why do you want to tell the story? And the third question is, are you reading writers of this community already? For the first question, when you try to represent characters reasonably and responsibly, you need to ask yourself, how do you imagine the characters in these stories? Do you imagine themselves by a particular bias or do you imagine them by, as I used the word before in this podcast, logic and reason? Unless you find the core logic or reason that makes you realize these characters in a certain place, you need to keep digging. And once you know the exact logic why you think about people in this particular sense, that's when you stop digging. That's when you realize, okay, now I can be responsible and reasonable when I'm representing characters in this particular demographic. The second question, which said, uh, why do you want to talk about these people in the first place? Why do you want to talk about this character's point of view? That's actually really valid, you know. You need to ask yourself, why are you not telling your own point of view in this story? Why must you talk about somebody else's point of view? To me, this whole thing is, is, is really personal. Because uh, I feel like I have a ton to write about from the perspective of other people. But that's just because you, uh, I mean, I or anybody right now who's uh, working globally employs some sort of a dual characteristic. The place where you come from and the place where you live. So um, that can happen if you're a member even of uh, a minority. You know, uh, You've probably been told by your ancestors that you have a really different tradition from the one you're following right now. And like, don't forget your roots. That's that's something that we talk about a lot. But what does it look like? Because I can guarantee you that um, you probably still have a lot more to do research. But uh, when, when you're talking about somebody else's point of view, but when you look inside, you have your own opinions, you have your own biases. And that's what people are coming to you for. That's why we have op-ed columns in all these successful newspapers. 
Now when they talk about reading writers of this community already, even if you have access to folks who can talk to you about uh, whether you've represented this community properly or not, it's still important to do this because uh, reading about writers from these demographics will tell you if you're missing on a readily accessible resource. And since they've been doing it for that particular demographic for a longer time than you have, obviously because you're just getting into it, they obviously have some resources that you should definitely tap into. Now to do all of this, there's two really cool internet resources that I'd like to share with you. The first one is called Writing with Color website. I'll link it in the description. I'll link both of them. The Writing with Color website is really cool. It invites readers to posit their questions about writing people from different ethnicities and marginalized communities. So it's like a panel of volunteers and they just give you answers to help you as a writer along. The second one is called Writing the Other. Um, it's it's developed by Nisi Shaw and Cynthia Ward, and um, it's basically like a, it's live workshop, but they've even got a book, and the book includes exercises that are each designed to help you understand the neurology and psychology behind some of the mistakes people made when they represented demographics that were not their own. So it's like this whole repository that can tell you the kind of mistakes that people have already made when they went to a new demographic. I think it's really cool and I don't know why I know about this but I feel I have um, I just happened to read them from a random pocket article that I saved it was some sort of a hyperlink and I ended up at these two websites but they're definitely something that's related to the article so I'll link them in the description and you can check them out this was basically the crux of the article these three questions and yeah this article was really short it was like just half a page so this magazine really cuts the crap it's about writing fiction it's not a fiction magazine that's what i got wrong so i just yeah anyway the article ends on a really cool quote it says when you're treating borders in someone else's ocean you need to pay attention you need to be responsible you need to do the work and be fully aware that you are the guest and sometimes it will work in your favor that's that's a nice way to end the article it reminds you what the whole premise of the article was about the second article that i really enjoyed from this magazine it's called um the biggest grammar woes sold it's by tony fitzgard um the article starts off with a small anecdote which is about this person who writes on twitter if my idea is good enough, why do I need to worry about the grammar? That's the editor's job, not my job. Tony takes serious offense on this tweet. And this is a tweet that I would have probably ignored because I don't see what's wrong with it. But then again, this is why I insist on picking up these new magazines. I'm not particularly curious about what writers read before they write their own stuff. But this perspective of how this could have come across as something that's wrong is is something that I'll learn from this language. It's not the grammar rules that this uh, magazine will teach me. I mean, sure, that's something that I'd like to know. But this is a new perspective. This is something that I never thought about. So um, why does the author take offense on this? Because according to him, grammar is not meant to be oppressive. It provides the guidelines to reduce confusion that would otherwise arise in our writing, which is true. Grammar is one thing in our language that's binding us together, you know. If you, if everybody just decides to stop using grammar, things lose their meaning. We, we just descend into anarchy. Where does it stop? Okay, maybe I overdid it, but you get the point. Anyway, there's no doubt that correct grammar makes your pitch much easier to understand. And reading messy grammar is a pain. I'm sure editors receive a lot, uh, a lot of emails, and 
if you are sending something to be edited to an editor and you yourself have terrible grammar he just knows that he's going to have to do a much harder job so there's a good possibility that an editor would just ignore you at least i would if i was an editor that's probably why i'm not an editor apart from a million other reasons but anyway bad grammar also distracts people from your ideas which is something that i've always felt when i read somebody's comments on facebook sometimes i'll just fixate on the one grammar issue that they have not a grammar nazi but i'll just fixate on that one small issue and i'll lose track of the article because i'm always thinking oh my god i need to fix that although now it's not 2012 so we don't go around correcting people about their grammar but there's still this urge to do it anyway um these are two things that i feel oh, a good grammar can really solve and that's something that actually i i need to think about a little more because i'm not entirely convinced that this is a writer's job to make sure that the grammar is perfect but somehow the edit uh, i mean uh, i i can see the point of of the writer of this article it does make sense to have at least some sort of a grammar check or some sort of a grammar threshold that you yourself as a writer need to check before you send stuff to an editor Now I'm not going to share all of the grammar tips that the article goes into but I'll just share some of them that I really enjoy especially because of the examples. The first one is effect versus effect and oh my god so many people get this wrong online it's honestly annoying. It's simple right? Effect does something like it affects the outcome of your query and effect on the other hand is a thing it's a result. Like uh this example is really cool in the magazine they say steroids may affect your mood. and steroids may have the effect of making you stronger so you know using them in the same sentence is a clever way to do it because now i'm going to stick this example in my head and i mean i didn't make a lot of mistakes but if it helps anybody i'm glad i'll just repeat it for you steroids may have the effect of making you stronger steroids may affect your mood you get it i think it's really cool the second one is lay versus lie and yes this is hard Uh, I mean I know lay means to put something down flat and that generally requires an object that's being acted upon and lie means to be flat like say on a bed or a surface or something the important uh, part here is the tip or the example like the hen laying eggs on one side and a chicken lying down on the other now think of that uh, is a lay lie situation like the chicken lays an egg just like you lay the book on the table and then the chicken lies because you know after laying the eggs they're tired so so the last grammar tip before we head on to the next section is further versus father and father is uh, something it denotes a physical or measurable distance like she moved father from where she was further relates to figurative not a literal sense like she moved further from her ideals of something now a good way to remember this is if you use for you're further away from an environmentalist favorite person that that's a pretty cool tip i i came up with that yes i'm going to take credit for it's due Now since I'm releasing this episode in the first week of April it only makes sense that we talk about the best April Fools prank according to according to what I've seen or read in popular media. Now this came in the first April edition of the New York Times so I think I'm going to have to read a couple of more editions just to make sure they weren't fooling me but if this is true and according to Google it is 
this is the greatest prank I've ever seen. A, a newspaper pull off. So basically, in September 1978, a living, full, a living room full of New York Times writers, they hatched a scheme. For a month, they put their lives on hold and they devoted their imaginative powers to a secret project. Now, this is during a time when there was a strike by pressmen and they shut down New York's major newspapers. So this group, they decided to make this fake parody New York Times uh, newspaper and they flooded the entire newsstand with it. Now, newsstand shoppers were fooled by thinking this was the real deal. If you don't look closely enough at the title, it actually looks like the New York Times, except for the fact that it says not the New York Times. But everything else, the font, the way the pictures are placed and every other placement inside the newspaper, it's just the same. And, you know, a bypasser might just mistake it for the actual New York Times. Now these people behind not the New York Times, the, this parody newspaper, they had a great sense of humor. In one parody column, the writer he walks past a skull of uh, a pile of skulls, and he interviews Genghis Khan, and he play and he praises Genghis' ability to get things done. According to them, it took a six-month investigation by a team of 35 not the New York Times reporters to determine that cocaine appears popular. So it's like this whole. Um, conspiracy theory that cocaine never existed and it's just normal powder that started appearing popular in popular media it's it's kind of it, this paper uh, it featured the writings of very popular um, New York Times uh, authors like George Plimpton, Terry Sullivan, Nora Ephron and Carl Benson these are like the classic New York Times writers and this is long before The Onion or The Daily Show so it set the standard for what has become news parody in, in today's popular media. What's fun is that despite this being such a huge project, like six months, these huge writers, they put everything on hold just to make this, they never documented this. And very few writers actually came out to take responsibility for this. And this never made it to, uh, to local newsstands. Like before this date, this was hardly ever talked about. And then suddenly the New York Times just writes about this and it writes this whole two and a half page story about how it happened. It's interviewed all of the uh, writers who were involved in this and some of them have um, reasons for doing it. They say that, well some of them just say it's because it was an April Fool's prank, but some of them say they wanted to, uh, and I quote this from the article, take their job less seriously, which is something that wasn't very popular in news if you think about it. Like today if you turn on Trevor, The Trevor Show or Stephen Colbert, yeah sure they I'm not saying they don't take their job uh, uh, seriously, but you know it's it's kind of a lighthearted show to watch, and that is what they wanted to do at that time. But obviously, it didn't catch on. Not a lot of people appreciated it, so they just put it on the shelf, and they never really talked about it till now. Let's go back to the magazine and the last article I want to talk about is called Eviscerating Envy. This article, uh, the author talks about competition and competitiveness in general of writers and um, they compare them to how they might feel lesser compared to big authors or writers in the genre who get published. Now when I was going into this article I realized that a lot of this is written for just a writer's perspective but a lot of these tips can actually be applied to almost anybody. So the first tip is first 
just let yourself feel it now when jealousy strikes you give yourself a moment and you feel why you're feeling this it's a petty emotion you know acknowledge your emotions even if you have to wallow in them tell a friend write it down cry rage it out do whatever you have to do shake off the uh, envy and once you do remember you've shaked it off you felt this way before and you're out of it now and if these negative thoughts come back dismiss them you know make space for new thoughts the second tip is break down your envy and find its core intense jealousy is often just a manifestation of anxiety so identify and examine what triggers these anxieties and equip yourself to address or avoid them easier said than done but yeah that's a good tip The third tip is where the process actually starts. You start paying close attention to what it shows that you really want. Why is this making you jealous? And then break down these dreams into smaller specific achievable goals and action points. That's where you actually start the process. The fourth trip is obviously working towards what you've just written down these small dreams. And since you write them into small bite-sized dreams, you know exactly what you're good at and what your strengths are. Start building on your strengths and start working on your weaknesses side by side. Just because they're your strengths doesn't mean you don't have to work on them. And of course, a weakness is something that you can always work on. That's a good strength to have, working on your weakness. Then of course, you need to be ready for disappointments. You need to realize that you're going to pay it forward. So, when you um when you watch somebody else do something, don't think of it as a win for your competition. Think of it as a win for a community and what it offers to you. because after all this community is the repository that you're going to be learning from so it's it's nothing less than an experience for you it's something that you can learn from and build yourself even better from building on this tip the author also says you should be fueled by the work and not by the industry remember why you started focus on the love of the craft you know tap into the joy of creating tap into the joy of why you started doing what you're doing in the first place so This is this funny story in fact uh, a friend of mine he had this poster in his room which said why did you get up today and he would look at it some days and he was yeah actually i don't have anything to do and he just go back to bed but that is not what you're going to do you're going to tell yourself you got up for a reason and you're going to go out and get it not everything is going to be fair but it's important to recognize the fact and just move on with it good luck and i hope you have a great week ahead thanks for listening again